0: Hallelujah, Hallelujah! praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. Those are good words, boys. Those are good words to hear. But they don't mean anything to you if you don't realize that you were or you are in captivity, in bondage. That you were or you are dead. I mean, the only reason being set free means anything is because you realize you were or are in a prison. The only realize coming to life means anything to you is if you realize that you were or are dead. That's the only reason that's good news, right? But for those of us who realize that before we trusted Jesus, we were dead. Even though we were physically alive, we were spiritually dead. And we knew that even though we felt a lot of freedom in a lot of ways, that in the most important ways, we weren't free. We were imprisoned. And and my prayer as we go into our time this morning is that we would all realize either what Jesus has truly saved us from or that we need saving from. And so I want to look at an amazing passage and introduce you to a dear friend of mine. We don't even know his name. But in in Luke chapter 8, if you turn there in your Bibles, if you have a Bible, we're going to look at a man I consider to be a friend. I have gotten to know him by reading this story and meditating on his story and through certain experiences in my life. And I'm thrilled that we're going to spend some time getting to know him a little bit tonight because he points us to the truest friend we could ever have, Jesus. This may sound strange to you, but I have a document on my computer with the people I want to make sure I meet when I go to heaven, and I even have the list in the order I want to meet them, the order of priority, and of course Jesus is at the top of the list, I don't know how that's going to work, is there going to be a waiting list, you got to sign up for office hours or an appointment or some kind, I don't know, there's got to be a directory in heaven so we can find these people, so I don't know how it's going to work, but I am looking forward to meeting some people in heaven. But here's what's interesting: every once in a while I'll tweak my list, and I'll change the order of some people based on things I'm learning about what it means to be a Christian life and uh, be a Christian and what the Christian life is all about. You know, when I started my list many, many years ago, the people at the top of the list after Jesus were people like Peter and Paul and Elijah and Moses, Jeremiah. But you know what's been happening through the years is I've understood what it means to be a Christian more and more. There have been people that are being added to the list and actually moving up the list, some of them even beyond the big names we know, like David and Elijah. And what's amazing about these people is like this guy we're going to meet this morning, we don't even know their names we just know this about them they understood grace they understood how much they had been forgiven the longer i'm a christian the longer i realize that that's the very heart of what it means to be a true follower of jesus you know that he saved your life you know that apart from jesus you were just a dead man walking you know that apart from jesus all you had to look forward to was an eternity in judgment away from the presence of God. But he saved your life. And so people have been moving up the list that I have. People like the woman, all we know about her, she's called the sinner woman from the city, probably a prostitute, who had been forgiven by Jesus, and she came and she took her her precious ointment that she had and probably used in her prostitution in some ways and she poured it out at the feet of Jesus and washed his feet with her tears as the important religious people looked down on her. But Jesus says she's the one who really gets it. I want to meet that one leper, an outcast of society because of this disease he walked around with, unclean in the eyes of everyone, that one leper. Out of the ten who were healed who came back and thanked Jesus. And Jesus says, where are the other ones? No, this guy had a gratitude that defined his life. I want to meet that widow who Jesus says gave everything she had. We don't know her name either. And, you know, we don't even know. I don't even think she knew that Jesus pointed her out to the disciples. Because they were stymied. They said, what do you mean? She gave almost nothing, and he said no. She gave everything she had. And we remember that woman 2,000 years later. I want to meet her. I want to meet these people who really understood that Jesus saved their lives. That he gave, it, it, They gave everything because they understood who he was. Well, the man we're going to meet this morning like I said, has become a friend. I really feel like people in the Bible become friends to me. And it's not going to be a first-time meeting when I finally see them in heaven. But this guy is precious to me. I want you to meet him because he points us to the most wonderful Savior in the world. So in Luke chapter 8, verse 26, we're going to find out about his story let's pray lord thank you for your word thank you for the good worship we were able to enjoy just now singing together as men what a joy to do that thanks for the worship team applying their skills and gifts you've given them to uh, bring us before the throne Lord, I I thank you for the joy of being able to gather like this around your word. I'm grateful for these men who've come eager and hungry to learn, and I pray that you do a powerful work in each of our lives now as we go to your word and the spirit works. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here's a story. The, The book of Luke has been moving along, and one of the things we see in the book of Luke is that Jesus was constantly reaching out to the marginalized, the hurting the unimpressive, the ones who weren't going to benefit him in any personal way or advance his ministry, sometimes turning his back on people who were important and could give him a lot to help somebody in a, in, the, in, in a few minutes and then return to them. But he would pay attention to the sick, the lame, the hurting, the blind. He would pay attention to the demon-possessed and the paralyzed and the social outcasts over and over again. And we see him meet a man today who desperately needed to meet Jesus. Here we go. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had Demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is Jesus is Jewish. He's in Gentile territory. So he's in, in the land of the unclean at this time and the way people were taught to think that the Gentiles, were this, this, they weren't in the people of God. They weren't in the in-group. They, they weren't part of God's working in the minds of these Jews. So he's among Gentiles now in the land of the Gerasenes, and he's in a graveyard. Jesus steps on the land. A graveyard is seen as an unclean place as well. And what we're going to see later on in the story, there are pigs being raised right next to this graveyard. Another unclean animal in the old covenant system. And so Jesus walks right into all this uncleanliness in our world. And that's a message you need to know. That this world is filled with all sorts of filth and sin and dirtiness. And God saves us out of it, not from a distance, but by walking into it. Rolling up his sleeves and walking our sinful, filthy streets becoming one of us and saving us out of our sin by walking right into the graveyard that we all live in, in the way we boot up. And so Jesus is here, and he walks into all these areas of uncleanness for us, to save us. This man is living in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, verse 28, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me? "'Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. "'For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. "'For many a time it had seized him. "'He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. "'Check this out. "'But he would break the bonds and be driven out by the demon into the desert.'" Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for, we are many de- for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Final judgment. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let him enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to see Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. What a story. I mean, anybody who thinks the Bible's boring must have never read it. My goodness, this is just incredible. What an awesome story. And I want you to notice that there are three reactions to this incredible, miraculous healing that Jesus brings to this man who desperately needed it. I mean, I read this story, and I think about these people who had known about and seen and heard this man. We find out in another gospel he's cutting himself. He breaks these chains and these bonds, which had to do massive damage to his legs and his arms. He's he's cutting himself. He's living naked, out of his mind, demon-possessed, in the tombs, in this graveyard. He's living with the dead, because he's dead in every important sense of the word. Everybody knew about this guy. He was very well known and very tragic. His family was probably still in the city living there. Maybe his wife and kids, is, maybe his parents, we don't know. But, but he has friends who used to know him before this tragic state took over. And they can hear him out there screaming and torment. People are afraid of him. They can't control him. And Jesus comes, and he heals him. And he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, we're told, clothed, peaceful, free, and in his right mind. You would think the people who heard about this healing would run to Jesus and say, You must be from God. You must be the one we all need. Maybe we don't have as dramatic problems as the man in the tombs, but we got all kinds of problems. Jesus, help us with our problems. Help us with our issues. But did you see how they responded? It makes me brokenhearted. They're afraid of him. Instead of saying, heal us too, free us too, they're afraid of him. And they ask him to leave. They reject him. And and I really see three possible responses in this passage that people still have in response to Jesus. The first one is just not knowing what to do with him. They're not sure. You know, most people, I don't know if I've ever met anybody who says, I hate Jesus. I mean, just don't make people like that. But there are a whole lot of people who don't know quite what to do with him. They like some of his sayings, like consider the lilies and you know, turn the other cheek, but, but they don't know what to do when he talks about coming again as the judge of all the earth. They don't know what to do when he talks about hell more than anybody else or talks about himself as God in the flesh, and apart from him, you can't know God. And so they don't know what to do with them, and they got to domesticate him and make a user-friendly version of Jesus that's a little easier for them to tolerate. They can't take the whole Jesus from the whole Bible. So people are in these weird situations with Jesus. They don't know what to do with him. And they're afraid of him. They're afraid of the real Jesus. And there are a whole lot of people who reject Jesus. Maybe they do it sort of in a passive way or a, a, a moral way, but, but they don't really want the real Jesus. And they ask him to leave. They don't want him part of their life. And I, I must tell you, I read this story and I can't believe it. I got exclamation points in the margins of my Bible when they say, leave, get out of here. Why don't they say, we need you Desperately. Help us. It's got to be because they're not aware of how much they need Jesus. They've got to be clueless to their condition in this sinful world if they ask Jesus to leave. The guy who was freed, see, that's the third response. You can fear him, you can reject him, or you can be freed by him. You can find freedom in Jesus. That's, that's the response, the only one we need to have. You can find healing and freedom and forgiveness and, and that's what Jesus provides. That's what he alone can offer us. And so we've, we've got to go to him. So there are actually seven points I want, to, I want you to catch. And don't get caught up, because sometimes I just decide to skip one. But, but um, you A-types are going to have a hard time with me preaching, I think. I missed one. Yeah, It's okay. Uh, here's the first point. The spiritual realm is real and powerful. We, we touched on this last night. We live in a world that's all about superficial strategy, fleshly solutions. A brother over here, when we, when we asked, you know, if you don't live for God, how are you going to live? And, and one of the brothers over there said, you're going to live in the flesh. You're going to walk in the flesh. And, and that's what we tend to do. We, we just naturally operate by what we can see and what we can feel and what we can quantify and put down on a list and, and figure out and accomplish. But when we realize that there is a spiritual realm That underlies everything, and the Bible talks about this as a foundational reality we've got to acknowledge and be aware of. It's been fascinating in my lifetime because when I was a kid and a young man, I met a lot of people who weren't Christians who didn't believe the spiritual realm existed. They explained everything by what we call naturalism, that everything's just molecules and atoms and stuff, and there's no spiritual realm, and it's a scientific, rationalistic worldview, and that's how they think about things. But throughout my lifetime, people have been more and more open to the spiritual realm. The New Age movement, Eastern religions has influenced Western culture more. And so people are more and more open to it. But again, they want a domesticated version of it. They want their designer version of spirituality that gives them power and a sense of significance in a world that would be very lonely otherwise. But they don't want God telling them what to do. They just want to get in touch with their spirituality. And maybe that's how you tend to think of things, too. And I understand that inclination because there is a spiritual realm. We're not just physical beings. We're spiritual beings. And, and there are angelic beings as well as divine persons in the Father, Son, and Spirit. And there are some angelic beings that have rebelled against God and they live in a world that is as anti-God in their way of doing things and anti-Jesus as you're going to find. Now, they show up often as really... Handsome, winsome, cool political leaders or religious leaders representing, I'm not saying the demons do that, but they use people who are very persuasive and influential and sell messages that are mostly true but tragically wrong in some key ways. So we get duped a lot. We get influenced a lot in this world by messages that are anti-God that sound really nice on the surface, filled with lots of truth but tragic lies woven into it. And and so people have versions of spirituality until that spiritual realm is ruled over by God. And we tend to talk about the spiritual realm as sort of this morally neutral thing, but the Bible's clear. There are good spiritual beings, and there are bad ones. There are ones that are there as messengers of God representing him, and there are ones trying to take everybody out who's living for God at any cost. Now, they're going to lose, and they know it, which is why they're desperate. And if we're on the winning side, we can take stock in that. And we're on the winning side. So, so the challenge is to be soberly aware and conscious of a spiritual realm that's out, out to take you out. That's why we mentioned that last night. We need to acknowledge this. But we also need to not fear it in an unhealthy way. We need to respect the fact that there's a spiritual and demonic realm that we need to engage with prayer and with the gospel and with the word of God and the power of Christ, but never fear it in an unhealthy way. Because Jesus has the last word. I played on a high school football team that almost never lost. We've had two losing seasons since 1897. I'm serious. It was in Connecticut, New England. We have the third oldest high school rivalry in the country. Naugatuck, Ansonia, on Thanksgiving morning, is the third oldest high school rivalry in the nation in football. And we were just, we were bad, to use a Michael Jackson 80s phrase. We were bad. And, and, and everybody knew it. I mean, if you, if you go to Northeast, people will know about Ansonia football. If we had this tradition it was incredible to be a part of this we would walk on the field and we'd watch the other team warming up and they might have some blue chippers over there who were heading D1 schools being recruited by everybody they may have had more talent but we knew we were gonna win and here's the best part they knew we were gonna win <laughs> I can't tell you what it was like to be part of a program now I've been on winless teams too But we didn't lose. Uh, We never lost when I was in high school. That's not hyperbole. We didn't lose. And and we were just the juggernaut. And it was so amazing to be part of this thing that had momentum for over a century. And that is just a little fraction, a little little glimpse of what it's like to be on the winning team with Jesus. Because he's going to win. Jesus is going to win but here's the thing the battle still rages we're on the winning side but it's like world war ii people have made this comparison you see when jesus came and delivered the decisive blow in the battle against principalities and powers in high places when he took satan out the battle wasn't over it was like d-day in world war ii if you know about d-day we invaded the beaches of normandy and we just took over europe and hitler knew he just had his back broken but he kept fighting even more intensely And the battle still rages. There were still casualties. There was still war to be fought. But everybody knew it was just a matter of time till V-Day came. And we won. And, And that's how it is in the battle that Jesus is fighting. He's delivered the decisive blow. And if you trusted him, you're on the winning side. And if you haven't, you're still on the side that's going down. You know, Christians, because of different beliefs we have, especially in areas of morality and things, people say, oh, you Christians, you're on the wrong side of history. We may be on the wrong side of the latest opinion polls, but we ain't on the wrong side of history. We're heading to the right place, and it's with Jesus forever as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's the side you get to be on when you just trust him. And so the spiritual realm is real, and it's powerful, and we can't minimize it, but we can't be afraid of it either. Jesus is in the process of taking back his world. Be amazed by the miracles, but don't fixate on them, because they're just signs that Jesus is taking back his world. He's the king, and it's the, his world's been under the domain of Satan, and he's taking it back. And, and we get to be part of that battle. And so when you become a Christian, you become a child of God, but you also become a soldier in his army. And that's what we get to be a part of. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 4 at the beginning of his public ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the primary battlefield that Jesus has us fighting in has always been the spiritual realm. I have a friend who's from Indonesia. It's so important to have people who come from very different kinds of places that you've come from primarily to give you insights. And we have this amazing event at our church. A lot of churches call it um, uh, VBS, Vacation Bible School. We call it Adventure Week. And our church we go we go after it and we people from all over the community come it's a way to bless our community they bring their kids we feed them dinner we have incredible skits and music and bible lessons and kids come to christ it's just amazing and the opening The time we have the first evening in the summer is just a blast. Our church turns out for this. The community turns out for it. And there are skits and people dressed up like Vikings and all this great stuff. And I'm standing there watching it, delighting in it. My friend Leo from Indonesia is standing next to me. And I I look over at him, assuming this guy from Indonesia is going to be really impressed with, with all this stuff going on. And I look over, and he was impressed. But tears are streaming down his face. And I said, Leo, isn't this great? And I look at him, and I see tears coming on his face. I see, and he goes, yeah, Eric, it's great. But we need to pray, because Satan hates this. He hates what's going on right near. We need to get on our knees. It was so good. For, I'll never forget that moment. I said, here's my man from Indonesia. And see, in Indonesia... Nobody doubts the spiritual realm. So that's where Satan engages it. And it it made me think, you know, we're here at this men's retreat, having fun, shooting guns, eating meat, having a blast together. Satan hates this. He hates what's going on. He hates that guys are moving toward freedom here. He hates that shackles are being taken off. He hates that relationships are going deeper. And so we need to be aware that we're in a war. And so we need to be prayerful about this whole thing. And so our main weapons of warfare need to be the righteousness that God gives us, the gospel that frees us, our faith in Jesus, prayer, the word of God. All these things need to be part of how we fight this battle every day of our lives. And so we recognize that our primary battle is in the spiritual realm. It's real, it's powerful, and we need to engage that. And there's spiritual victory. Here's what i want you to realize though this miracle is amazing that this guy's freed from demon possession but the greatest miracle you'll ever see is a man moving from darkness to light Amen. and death to life and bondage to freedom I- i've never seen a blind man suddenly healed and able to see but i was blind and now i see in the most important ways and so, so we, we've got to realize that we're in captivity otherwise. A man moving from a sinful condition to a freed condition in Christ, becoming a new creature in Christ, that's the greatest miracle you ever see. That's, the Red Sea parting is nothing compared to a man coming to Jesus. And so that kind of miracle is the greatest miracle, and the freedom this man experiences is just a glimpse of that. And a lot of people want the power in the spiritual realm, but not the person of Jesus, and you can't have one without the other. Jesus is the one who gives us that power. The name of Jesus has the power we all need. And the person of Christ is the one we need. There's a scene in Luke 10, just a couple chapters later, Jesus sends the disciples out, the 72, and they're ministering in his name. And listen to what he says. It says in Luke 10, 17, The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to our name. So now they're doing miracles like Jesus does in this guy's life. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, listen to this, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, and it's great to have power in the spiritual realm, but the greatest thing is to know that you're saved and forgiven, and your name is written in heaven, and Jesus is preparing a place for you. That's point one. Point two, sin is always destructive. This guy is a radical display of the destructiveness of sin. He's physically ravaged from this. He's mentally tormented. He's emotionally ravaged from this. He's a social outcast. All his relationships have been messed up, and that's what sin does. It breaks our relationship with us and God. It breaks our relationship with us and other people. It breaks our relationship even in the creation where we're at war with the animal kingdom and cancer cells, and and all these wars are raging at every level, including in the Middle East. That's just a display of the fallen condition of this world. We see sin on display every day when we turn the news on, and we're part of a very tragically fallen world, and so to realize that is vital for us, and to engage it realizing that sin is always destructive, so I don't want anything to do with sin. There's no such thing as a private sin, there's no such thing as a sin that doesn't hurt me and other people, there's no such thing as a sin that isn't destructive. And this idea that there are some sins that I can get away with because it's just me or it's just private or it's just personal, that's just not true. Sin is always destructive. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Looking at porn is waging war against your soul. And it's making you off-duty in your ability to love other people, to respect women, to love your wife the way that we're called to. Whatever the sin is, lying, pride, arrogance, materialism, chasing after worldly things, whatever the sin is, envy, comparison, somebody mentioned last night. All these things that we engage in, they destroy us. Sexual sin is highlighted all the time in the Bible in this way. Proverbs says, the lips of an adulterous woman drip honey, but in the end her ways lead to death. What I love about that, it says, yeah, there's a honey dripping attractiveness and pleasure in sexual sin for a season. And then it leads you to death. You know, substance abuse feels good for a while. And then it leads to death. Giving yourself to anything is, is what controls your life will lead you to death unless it's God, the author of life. And he alone gives the life we all, we all desperately need. My, my dear friend Chris Mitchell, amazing man. He spent time up here. I just love my brother Chris. He's with Jesus now. He died when he was 63 right after he caught a big-mouth bass in Colorado. <laughs> got off the boat and died. I've never met a man more ready to die than Chris. He talked about heaven all the time. He was aware Jesus loved him and saved his life, and he couldn't wait to get to heaven. He, he had a friend who was dying one time, Steve, and he goes to Steve, and Steve, you know, he's in the last weeks of his life. He said, Steve, I, I hope you don't find this insulting or awkward or anything, but you're going to be in heaven soon. And there are people I really love in heaven. And so I made a list of them. And have I included photographs? I don't know how it's going to work, he said. And, I, and I, I have messages here that I want you to communicate to my, my loved ones in heaven. Is that all right, Steve? And Steve? Steve was an amazing man, too. He said, yeah, that sounds good to me, Chris. So he's trying to get it all in his head before he goes to heaven. That's what Chris is like. The last sermon Chris preached at our, our church before he died was on heaven. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, I can't wait to get to heaven because I'm going to see Jesus. I'm going to see all these people I love. But he said, do you know what? I'm starting to long for so much that I never used to even think about. He said, when I'm in heaven, no one will ever be hurt by me again. Never even thought of that. Isn't that amazing? I will never hurt my wife again with my words. I'll never hurt anybody again with my impatience and my anger. I'll never never do anything that's going to be destructive to anyone again. That's beautiful freedom. Sin is always destructive. Let's not minimize it or trivialize it. Three, knowing the truth isn't enough. I've got to tell you, one of the most stunning things to me in the Bible is how much accurate knowledge demons have. I tell my students at Biola where I teach theology, I say, I think demons could ace every one of my theology exams in this class. I think they could all get A's on my theology exams. The problem with demons is not that they don't know who God is. It's that they don't respect who God is. They don't fear God in a healthy way. They don't worship him. Knowing him isn't transformative of them. I mean, in this scene, I could just see the disciples. The demon says, what have you to do with us, Jesus, son of the most high God? And the disciples are, what did he say? What did that demon just say about Jesus? Is that who he is? Whoa! The demons, I think, are informing the disciples a lot in the Gospels. Helping them understand who Jesus really is. The Bible says the demons believe there's just one God and shudder. Demons are good monotheists. They believe there's only one God. They just don't love him. They just don't serve him. They just don't worship him. They They just don't find themselves devoted to him. They reject him and rebel against him. So just knowledge isn't enough We need to have faith and trust and love for God and trust him in that way. So we have to depend on him. He says, what have you to do with us, son of the most high? So knowledge isn't enough. We need knowledge that's saving knowledge, that's transforming knowledge, that leads to worship and devotion and healthy, holy fear of God. Number four, and this is maybe the hardest thing for us to realize this morning. We are all... Like the man of the tombs. It's easy to look at his dramatic, drastic circumstances and put him in another category than the rest of us. He really needs Jesus. I just kind of need Jesus. I just sort of need Jesus. and that is such a wrong way to think about our sinful condition. We're all part of the uncleanliness of this scene. Listen, to Ephesians 2. You speaking to Christians before they were Christians, you were dead. Dead In the trans- trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, all of us, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's where we're all in this together. We're, we're all desperately wicked, the Bible says. Now, you may be blessed with an environment and with blessings that are ultimately from God that have preserved you from going the way your sinful heart otherwise would have taken you. But please realize that's not because you aren't desperately sinful in the way you start as a human being. We're all in this together. We all like sheep who've gone astray. Every one of us has gone our own way. We all need Jesus equally. You know, I stopped using the phrase, man, he was radically converted. Or, man, he, Jesus really saved that guy. That kind of thinking is just, ra- now I get what we're saying. I mean, this guy is so obviously desperately needy. But we all are. And I got to tell you, I have worked doing ministry in, in maximum security prisons. I've worked doing ministry with guys on death row. And I've worked with billionaires in corporate executive offices. And I must tell you, I'm far more hopeful typically when I walk into a prison than I walk into a corporate headquarters. I am. I mean, everybody's oh afraid. No, those guys know their need. In that prison, they're, they're not acting like they got it all figured out. They say stuff like, you know what? My best thinking got me in here. I stopped listening to my best thinking. I need God. I'm telling you, it's amazing how how troubling it can be when we think we got life figured out and we're not desperately needy. We're all in this together. And see, this is what kills any pride in the Christian life. This is what kills comparison. You know, it's not like, well, I've sinned, but I've never done that. Not that bad. Now that guy's really bad. He really... No, no, no. See, we're all in this together. That's where we all start off. That's why elitism or arrogance or looking down on anybody, you have no place, none of us has any place to look down on anybody else. We're all in this together. And guys, you realize how freeing that is? The competition that most men get consumed by is out the window it's gone. We're not comparing ourselves. We're not sizing guys up when we walk in the room thinking, I could take him, I could take him, like I'm so ingrained to do. We're not comparing ourselves. You know, I I heard a guy say that that little boys are taught to define themselves first by the ball field, then by the bedroom, and then by the boardroom. And we find all our significance from all those things thinking that we're actually all that because we've attained some accomplishments in some of those areas. And so we've got to realize that we all are in the same place. This guy has some dramatic displays of his neediness, but we're all equally needy before God. You know, the first time I really got introduced to this guy, it was a friend of mine. And, and he and his wife have a, have a son who, he's a nightmare, man. He's, he's, he's got being cruel down to a science. He set their house on fire when he was a teenager. He wouldn't speak to his father for years directly. He'd talk about him. And he would never use his name. He'd never say dad. He'd never use his name. He called him It. It's home. I mean, it, he ripped their hearts out every day. And in the midst of an especially brutal time, my friend came to me and he said, Eric. Have you heard of the Garrasine demoniac? I said, remind me, brother. And he opened up his Bible to this passage. He said, Listen, Eric. And he read this story to me. And he said, That man, that man of the tombs, that's my boy. He said, That's my boy. There's hope for him. He said, Eric, I was losing a hope, but there's a hope for my boy. And he said, and here's what I realized. There's hope for me, too, because I was dead, too. I was living among the dead, too. And Jesus saved me and him bringing me to life. Relatively speaking, it's not, not any more dramatic than what he needs to do in my boy's life. We're all in the same boat, and Jesus is the one we all need. We're all like this man. We need him, and he's, Jesus alone the one who can save us. That's point five. Jesus alone has the power and the compassion to save us. Don't fear him. Don't flee from him. Don't reject him. Find him and find freedom in him. You know, that passage I read from Ephesians says, we're all dead in our transgressions and sins. Listen to what it goes on to say. But God. But God. I have a friend. He has a t-shirt he gave me and sweatshirts, And it just says, but God. And I walk around Costco and people say, amen. Point at that sweatshirt. They know what I'm talking about. I do. It's amazing. Christians who get it, you know those people who know how much they've been forgiven, they see Buck God and they say, that's right. I'd be dead if it weren't for Buck God, right? And here it is. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what he gives us. That's what we have in him, and that's what we all desperately need. Amen. Amen. Jesus is coming back, and one day he will finally conquer all the powers of darkness once and for all and he's already done that in the lives of those of us who've repented and believed in him and you know how he does it it's the most astounding thing you'll ever think about you know how jesus saves us out of the graveyard he goes into the graveyard himself he doesn't just save this man from his graveyard you know how he does it ultimately jesus has his own grave he dies in our place He experiences the judgment of God in our place. Spiritually, he goes to hell for us. He hears a forsaking word from the Father and experiences the separation and the judgment we should have experienced. Jesus became the man of the tombs. He was punished in our place. He's beaten. He looked worse than this guy physically after his night of beatings by the Roman soldiers. He was unrecognizable. I think that's why Pilate had to say, behold the man you're talking to, This is him. You can't recognize him because he's been beaten all night, I know. He looked worse than this guy. And he had a tomb of his own. And he walked out of that tomb. He was freed. And that's why he can free this man and can free us. Because he took our place in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And Jesus became the man of the tombs. And he's the one we desperately need. Jesus saves us forever. Now, I don't know where you guys are. Every time I preach, I know there are probably four kinds of guys sitting out there. One, guys who come here, and they're not Christians. They've never trusted Jesus, and they know it. And I'm glad you guys are here. I'm pumped you're here, maybe more than anybody else. I'm glad you were willing to come with a friend, even though you knew you had to hear some religious stuff. Singing's weird to you, whatever. But I'm glad you're here. I'm thankful the Spirit of God was working your life enough to get you here. There are other guys who think they're Christians, and they're not. They just know religious answers. They've done a few religious things, and so they think they're okay. And they're like the Pharisees in the Bible. They just have external religiosity but not a real relationship with God where they got to the end of themselves and at the feet of Jesus. And then there are struggling Christians who are battling sin sin. And about to be taken out. They're giving themselves over to spiritual darkness. There are struggling Christians who are doubting and fighting but struggling deeply. And then there are strong Christians who are thriving and getting after it. And I love all four of you. And I'm glad all four of you are here. But but I want to give an opportunity to those first three right now. The first three who are saying, yeah, I'm not a Christian and I know it. But I want to be one. I want to trust Jesus. I don't want to fear him. I don't want to reject him. I want to find freedom in him. Or if you're really battling it right now, if you are battling spiritual powers of darkness, if sin is taken over in your life, if you're feeling the shackles getting all wrapped around you again, I want this morning to you find, for you to find freedom. And, and if you're realizing, you know what, I thought I was a Christian, but I actually don't think I am. This stuff this guy's saying, this is not how I've thought about this. I'm, I'm just a religious dude. That's all I am. Who's done some good things. So for the first three... If you come to realize you're not a Christian, if you came here knowing you weren't, but you want to be one, you want to be a follower of Jesus, and if you're in it, fighting battles that you need help with, would you just stand up so I can pray for you? No drama, no manipulation. Would you stand up so I can pray for you guys? Bless you guys. Stay standing. I want to pray for you. Lord, I'm grateful for these men who are willing to say, I need Jesus, and I need brothers to help me. That's what they're saying when they do this publicly like this, Lord. The Christian life is personal, but it's public. It's not private, and I'm grateful, Lord, that these men were willing to stand up and say, I need freedom. We all uh, need freedom from Jesus, Lord, so I pray for these dear brothers that you would help them to Understand what it means to truly repent and walk away from the sin in their lives. I pray that they would understand what saving faith means. It's a life abundant and eternal in Jesus with all kinds of challenges along the way. Lord, I pray they'd get plugged in to good local churches that preach the word. I pray that they would move toward their brothers and their brothers would move toward them and help them in this battle. Lord, Satan hates what just happened and he hates what you're gonna do. And so, Lord, I pray that these these men would know that they're soldiers, but they're on the winning side. And as they depend on the Spirit and the Word of God and the brothers and sisters in their lives to help them along the way, they'll thrive and they'll grow. And they'll become the men that you created them to be. So bless them, Lord. I pray the rest of our week together would be incredibly grounding and anchoring and, and fortifying for them that they'd be ready for the battle and ready to love and lay down their lives in ways they never thought possible. And so, Lord, I pray for power in the lives of these men and that we'd come alongside them and help them in whatever ways they need. So bless them, Lord. Encourage them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.